This is the word of the Lord. The woman gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives, even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea. For the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he'd been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given to uh, the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water uh, like a river out of his mouth uh, after, after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war with, on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus And he stood on the sand of the sea. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, uh, we thank you that your word speaks to us things that, that no one else will say to us, that no one else could say to us. There, there is knowledge and truth in your word that that can't be found out by human wisdom, uh, by uh, human study or speculation. It is the revelation, the gift of the knowledge of God and, and your purposes in history for us. And so we pray that you would take uh, these uh, mysterious words and you would apply them into our lives, that they would shape who we are as a community and that we would... Um, honor you with our lives, that we would trust your promises, and that we would obey the Lord Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we are in our second week, returning to uh, the, the book of Revelation, looking at uh, Revelation chapter 12 this morning. And one of the main ways that we've been interpreting Revelation uh, together as a community is that it's largely detailing the events um, that happened to Jesus' disciples in the generation after Jesus died, rose again from the dead, and ascended into heaven. So what Revelation is, is a symbolic 
and spiritual history of the church in the first century. And the passage we're looking at today, it describes a war that has moved from heaven to earth. You see how the passage I just read begins there in verse 7. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And then the passage ends in verse 17 by saying, Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. So it begins with war, it ends with war, but it begins with a war in heaven among the angels, and it ends in the earth with a war between the dragon and human beings. And uh, you'll notice that the change from heaven to earth is there in verse 9. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And so last week we talked about how this event, when the Satan was thrown down out of heaven was an event that happened sometime around the first, in the first uh, century. And actually, uh, Jesus mentions it in, in Luke chapter 10 when he sends out his disciples to cast out demons. In Luke 10, 17, this is what it say, uh, says, the 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And so Jesus says that Satan's fall from heaven happened sometime during his ministry in the, in the first century. So he said he saw that happen. So the question for us is how are we supposed to think about this great war that's described in Revelation 12 and how does it affect our lives? Well, uh, you know, many people uh, talk about the culture war of our generation the, between the left and the right and conservatives and progressives. And I think the great spiritual war has overlapped with that war. It's not exactly the same. But who is in the war? What are the battle lines of the war in this passage? Well, you see it there in verse 10, where it says, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And so the war is between the accuser and the brothers. The accuser, that's actually the word Satan means, accuser. And the brothers are a family. There's a family. It's God's family. It's God's household. It's the church. That's us. So the main battle line is between Satan and the church. And if you care about the great spiritual war of our generation, I think we need to put a far stronger emphasis on the importance of the church and the family of God. Uh, this is where the real war is. And there are all kinds of other cultural movements that have overlap with the church, both politically and culturally. And of course, you know, we, it's important for us to think about who we're going to vote for and how does the Bible shape the laws of our land but our ultimate work and loyalty is in the building up of the body of Christ. It's this community is the, the, is the, the center of that war. And so today, we're going to be talking a little bit about this war. And in particular, I want to make two observations from this passage. This is what they are. Is that the war has moved from Jesus to us. And second, that the war has moved from heaven to the church. The war has moved from Jesus to us. First, and that second, the war is moved from heaven to the church. And really what the book of Revelation is about is about preparing the church for war. They needed to be prepared for war. We need to be prepared for war. And uh, anyone that isn't willing to admit that there is a war happening 
is getting themselves ready to lose that war if they're not even willing to face it, okay? So two points this morning about the war with the dragon. And the first is this, that the war has moved from Jesus to us. The war has moved from Jesus to us. And you can see that's the case there in verse 13, where it says, And when the dragon saw that he'd been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. Now, if you were here last week, you know that this woman, we said, is, uh, is Israel. The, the people of Israel through whom the Messiah, Jesus, this male child, was born. And in that passage, it was saying that the dragon was there waiting for the woman to give birth so that he could devour the male child. But the male child was taken up by God and is now enthroned in heaven. That's Jesus. He's been taken up to heaven. He's enthroned in heaven. And so, uh, uh, so now the dragon has turned from the male child and is now pursuing the woman who is the people of God. And so later in this passage, it clarifies a little, uh, little more about the woman. You see in verse 17, it says, The dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. So you have this woman who's true believing Israel, and she gave birth to the Messiah, but then she also has these other offspring, these other children that are a part of her family, and it's people who keep the commandments of God and believe in the testimony, believe the gospel. These are Christians. That's who we are. We are the rest of her children and this family. And so the dragon's attacks have moved from Jesus to his followers in this family of his. And one thing that we all have to settle in our hearts as Christians is that we are in a war. We are being attacked and we have an enemy. And that's true of us as a community, and that's true of us as individuals. And some of you might feel that. I feel that. I feel that as a community. I feel that in the world. I feel that in myself. I feel like my life is, is a war. And so, uh, and so there are a couple things I want to say about the fact that the war has moved from Jesus to us. Okay, a couple subpoints about that. Okay, the first is this, is that in war, Jesus often feels absent. In the war, Jesus will often feel absent. And in a war, when you say we're, gonna, we're in a war, it often sounds glamorous. You know, that oh, I'm going to go off to war. We're going to war with the evil of the world, and we feel triumphant, and we feel powerful. But that's really not what war feels like. I, my wife and I watched the, uh, there's a new film adaptation of uh, All Quiet on the Western Front. Maybe some of you watched this that last year. And uh, it's a story about World War I. And it's a teenager who is a German teenager who, with his buddies, they want to go off to war and they want to be heroes. And so he goes against his parents' wishes and enlists. And the whole movie is about how awful the war is and how terrible and how he just struggles to stay alive. And he has all these moral decisions he has to make. And it's just nothing like the glamour that he was picturing in his mind. And I think that Revelation is preparing God's people to be sober about the war they're in. And one of the realities is, is that in war, Jesus often feels either absent or harsh. And I'll explain what I mean by that. Uh, you notice how this passage begins there in verse 5. How it says, she gave birth to a male child. So we talked about that's Christ, the male child, one who is to rule the world with the, uh, rule all the nations with a rod of iron. That's a quote from Psalm 2. 
But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And so we, we talked about how this is Jesus being, he's ascended into heaven. And it's kind of a quick story about him. You know, it skips the cross. It skips his life and ministry. It's just it quickly summarizes Jesus was born and then he went up into heaven. And because the story is not really about him, it's about his followers. That's what Revelation is about. And what's surprising, he's taken it up into heaven. First, he's still a child when he's taken up into heaven. But what's also surprising is that Jesus does not appear to help his followers again in Revelation until chapter 19. And so in the chapters between chapter 12 and chapter 19, a lot's going to happen. There's going to be the sea beast, which we'll say, talk about as the Roman Empire that has become hostile against uh, the church. And then there's the land beast, which is Jerusalem, and also hostile Jews who have turned against the church as well. These are the kind of primary two adversaries of the early church that we read about in the New Testament. And then the bowls of wrath are poured out. And, and in chapter 18, it describes the devastating destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And through all that, Jesus does not descend from heaven to rescue his people from all that suffering. And for the next seven chapters, he only appears twice. And if you look at the two places where Jesus appears, one, he's standing with 144,000 martyrs who are all going to be sealed and martyred for his name. He doesn't spare them. And then again in chapter 14, he comes with a sickle in his hand, and it's the great harvest of the earth where his people are described as being put in a wine press and blood is flowing as high as a horse's bridle. He is, and Jesus is not the one at war with the dragon. The churches, his disciples, and his followers are. And through all these chapters, he makes no appearance of rescue. And Peter Lightheart describes it this way. He says, As Adam faced the archaic serpent alone without divine rescue, so the saints will face down the dragon, two beasts, and a seductive harlot without messianic rescue. And unlike Adam... They will conquer. We need to be aware that it, this is often what war feels like. Where is Jesus? Now, of course, it's not that he is absent. He has promised, I do not leave you as orphans. He says to his disciples, lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age. But what that means is that we're going to have to trust his promise that he is with us more than our own feelings that he's not. We can't trust our feelings that Jesus has abandoned us. We have to trust his word of what he said that he's with us. So what, is, so what does it mean that the war has moved from Jesus to us? First, in war, Jesus often feels absent. Second, in war, Jesus wants us to face the dragon. In war, Jesus wants us to face the dragon. One of the things that's most striking to me about Revelation is how much suffering God permits or, or ordains for his beloved people. And I'll tell you, this is a part of the Bible that's a challenge for our culture. You know, we live in a culture that puts a lot of emphasis on, on empathy. And, you know, when someone is suffering, we want to feel with them. We want to relieve them of the suffering. And of course, that, there's a, that's true. And the Bible tells us to weep with those who weep, to be compassionate and to be kind for those, for each other when we're suffering. But uh, the psychologist Edwin Friedman has pointed out that one of the most important qualities of emotional maturity is not only having a tolerance for our own pain, but learning to have a tolerance for other people's pain. I mean, some of you might experience that about yourself, that you have a tendency when somebody's suffering, I just want to go in and rescue them from it, which is not what Jesus is doing. 
in this passage. And you've maybe come to realize some people in your life that they're like, I can see that they're going to walk through suffering uh, maybe because of a decision they're made or because de- decisions they've made in their past and they're just going to have to experience this suffering. I'm going to have to let them do it. And it's a part of my trust in God to be okay with that. And it surprised me the amount of suffering God tolerates for people that he loves. And he doesn't swoop in and rescue them. The Bible says God is a protector. He's a shield. He's a fortress. Was God a protector of Jesus when Jesus went to the cross? Was God a protector of Jesus when Jesus went to the cross? It says in 1 Peter 2.23 that Jesus entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. The Father did deliver Jesus from his enemies, but not by sparing him going to the cross. Let me quote Peter Lightheart one more time. This is what he says. We cannot hope for painless renewal in the church or the world. The church is renewed by sharing by the Spirit in the dying and rising of Jesus. The church is made a new body through a painful passage of dismemberment. The world must be shattered to pieces before it can be rebuilt. Every time we receive the body and blood of Jesus, we're called to become and we are becoming a community of sacrifice, a people prepared for world-destroying, world-building witness. It's a great description of what the book of Revelation is about. The Lord is not going to spare us from the war. He's going to send us into battle, and he's not going to swoop, swoop in to rescue us out of it. In war, Jesus wants us to face the dragon. And I'll tell you what that meant for the first audience of Revelation. The first audience of Revelation, this book was to prepare them. It was probably written in the early 60s. In 64 is when the systematic persecution of uh, Christians would happen from Nero. It's just a couple years away. It is preparing them for martyrdom. And that's why it says in verse 11, and they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even to death. The war has moved from Jesus dying on the cross to his followers, to us dying with him. The gospel is not that Jesus died so that we didn't have to. The gospel is that Jesus died so that we can go die with him and experience new life with him as well. Now, a piece of hope in this is that even though Jesus can feel absent in the midst of all this, maybe you've sensed that. Remember, he said he will not leave us as orphans, which when he says he will not leave us as orphans, on the one hand, it means he said he'd give us his spirit, that his spirit lives in us to give us strength, give us words, give us endurance, um, to encourage us to pour love and kindness and service, to give us gifts. All of this is poured out on us. But also, if we are not orphans, then that means we've been adopted into a family. And so if we're not orphans, we have each other as brothers and sisters. We have a community. And what that means is we are not in a war alone. We are in a war together. And so that leads to our second point. So first, the war has moved from uh, Jesus to us. So Jesus will often feel absent to us, but even though he has promised to be with us, and he wants us to prepare to face the dragon. But second, the war has moved from heaven to the church. 
The war has moved. The f- battlefront is this community. It's not us as individuals, but us as a body and us as a community. And one of the major issues in Revelation is that the spiritual war is not just outside the church, out in the world, but it's also inside uh, the church. And if you go back to the beginning of Revelation, the beginning of Revelation starts with these seven letters that Jesus sends to seven churches in the first century. And they were all in what's modern-day Western Turkey. And and many of those churches, uh, many of those letters say, that inside the church, there are false teachers, there's false prophets, there's Jezebel who seduces the servants of God with sexual immorality. This is all within the church. And then two of the churches also have this synagogue of Satan that is harassing them. These are probably literal synagogues in the first century that uh, are persecuting fellow Jews who become Christians. And so um, one more time uh, to uh, quote Lightheart. This is what he says. This passage places a demand on individual Christians and churches to be diligent in expelling the dragon. Whenever he's thrown out of the heart of the church, however, he becomes enraged and redoubles his attacks. So it says part of this is telling us the dragon's going to be in here and we need to cast him out. We need to see him. We need to notice him, know what he looks like, and we need to cast him out and he will redouble his attacks on us. We need to know that that's the kind of war we're in. So where should we look for the enemy within the church? Well, two things I want to point out from this passage, okay? The first is the enemy looks like false accusation. The enemy looks like false accusation. And again, you see that in verse 10 there. It says, Now I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. And so Satan is bringing accusations against the church. If you go read in 1 Peter 2, that's what it says. Warns the early church, you're going to be called evildoers. So, you know, let your conduct be so good about among the, the, the unbelieving world that when they see your good deeds, they'll glorify your God, God on the day of your visitation. But you're going to be called evildoers. These are the accusations that are brought against the church. And actually, someone was just telling me about um, uh, an education conference that they went to a couple of years ago, and uh, Vody Bauckham was speaking there. Vody Bauckham is a pastor who's been involved in starting classical schools in, in Africa. And there was a panel and a Q&A and someone came to the microphone and they were complaining about how churches were not doing enough to start Christian schools and start classical schools. And basically, Voda Bakum in front of this whole conference just, just rebuked the person. He says, don't come to this microphone and start making accusations and criticisms of the bride of Christ. Jesus loves his bride. I give my, he, I'm a pastor. I give my whole life. And to come up and bring accusations against the community that Jesus loves, that's not going to be tolerated in here. And the person just, he didn't even answer the question. And what's interesting is he probably agreed with the person. He probably wants more churches to start classical schools. That's what he really believes in. But what he cared more about was the honoring of the body of Christ and how important and precious this community is to Jesus. Jesus loves us. Satan wants to tear us down with accusations. But Jesus shed his blood for this community. And when people talk about the church, do they speak with the same affection and devotion that our Lord does? 
And of course, this is a huge issue in our day. You know, the church is under massive accusation. If a church believes in the Bible, the church is accused of being regressive and abusive and bigoted. Uh, many students in schools and in universities are taught versions of church history that the church is this superstitious institution that just wants to control people and take their money, which is absolutely absurd. I mean, if you read the history of the influence that the Christian church has had on the good of the world for the last 2,000 years, it is absolutely breathtaking. And I, I know just in my own experience, I didn't grow up going to church, and I became a Christian when I was 16 and started going to church when I was 17. And I've, for the last 25 years, I've been in a bunch of churches. The people are largely just really loving people. They want to love God. They're, you know, they understand they're sinners. They're working on things. But, I mean, these aren't a bunch of monsters. These people aren't judgmental and harsh. They're very gracious. And, of course, we all have our quirks. We have our sins. We have our problems. We have our flaws. And, but one of the struggles about Satan's accusations is they're generally not totally false. I mean, we have sins. We have flaws. What do you think he's going to do when he brings an accusation? He is going to take some flaw, and he's going to put a magnifying glass to it, and he's going to blow it up and just say, look at how terrible this is. And he loves to find a flaw in us and say, you could never be God's chosen and special people. Martin Luther put it this way. He says, apart from the forgiveness of sins, I can't stand a bad conscience at all. The devil hounds me about a single sin until the world becomes too small for me. While God loves life, the devil hates life. And that's what you need to know is the devil hates you and God loves you. Trust him. Trust his words. And that's why the... Uh, what's the way that we conquer Satan? Verse 11 tells us, and they conquer him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. How does the blood of the lamb conquer Satan? It's because it silences the accusations. The blood of the lamb says how our value to Jesus. The blood of the lamb says that all of our sins are forgiven. You can't bring a charge against God's elect. That God, you know, how precious we are to him. You, the Satan can't bring. So even, even the accusations that are true, the sins that we have, we can admit them and we can work on them because we know that we're forgiven. We can face those. That doesn't mean that we're not God's people and that the spirit is not here. And then the, the accusations that are false, we silence the liar with the truth of God's word. And so first, the war has come to the church and it looks like the enemy falsely accusing this community. And I'll tell you, an application for all of us is be careful in being critical of the church. That's a huge temptation for us, a huge temptation. Be careful of being critical of the church. False accusation against the bride of Christ is satanic. And we must continually remind each other of the gospel that the blood of, lamb, of the lamb is our only confidence before God and the accusations of Satan. Now, I imagine that some of you will hear that and say, okay, that sounds true. I see that that's what this passage is saying. But what about the sins in the church that do need to be called out? 
Doesn't the Bible itself name sins in the church? In the beginning of Revelation, Jesus went through all these seven churches. And he said, well, you got some good things, and I'm going to tell you what your sins are. And we're going to record them, actually, for 2,000 years, for that all the church history. People are going to read about them. Absolutely. The Bible tells us there are going to be evil people in the church. Jesus tells us, beware of false prophets. He says, you will know false prophets by the fruit of their life. Evaluate your teachers in, in the character of their lives. And so what is the difference between the accusations of Satan and honestly naming the sins of the church? Well, I think that's the second place that we look for the enemy. Okay, so first we look for the enemy. The enemy looks like false accusation. But also the second thing we see in this passage is that the enemy looks like false worship. There is things that we need to be critical of, and one of the things this passage says is false worship. You notice what it says about the accusations of, of Satan, the second part of verse 10, who accuses them day and night before our God. That language of day and night, that's a, a, a liturgical formula. It's from the, the temple. You know, they would have sacrifices, morning and evening sacrifices was the pattern of worship. And it says day and night before our God. So that's in the presence of God, which is in the temple. This is a religious setting where Satan is making uh, these accusations. Satan's activity is not outside religion, but inside. And there are patterns of spiritual life that even within the church can take on satanic influence. Which means that alongside being careful of being overly critical of the church, we also need to be careful of being overly affirming of the church. It's like both tolerance and accusations are both the work of the devil. Tolerance and accusations are both the work of the devil. You say, well, how are you going to guard against both these errors? Well, I think verse 17 says it perfectly. It describes those who are going to war with the devil, and this is how it describes their warfare with him. Verse 17. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Okay, those two things, keep the, the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So we guard against being overly tolerant, by keeping the commandments of God. If the Bible calls us to do something, we do it. Now, as a church, we're very careful to not go beyond what is written in the Bible. You know, the Bible's got plenty of commands for us. We don't need to add more to it. And we want freedom. And, uh, but if the Bible says it, we're going to do it. When worship practices, beliefs, and behaviors are introduced into the church, clearly contrary to the commandments of God, they have to be confronted. So that's how we avoid being overly tolerant. We also guard against the criticism and accusation of the devil by holding to the testimony of Jesus. And holding to the testimony of Jesus means that we are preaching the gospel to each other over and over again. We're constantly reminding one another. That's why when you come to this church every Sunday, you're going to be hearing about Jesus and what he's done for us. The sufficiency of his work on the cross, the hope of the resurrection, the promise of the spirit, the promise of eternal life. Over and over, we need to be assured of the love that God has shown to us in Christ. And so how do we go to war? 
by following the Lamb of God, who is Jesus Christ, wherever he leads. We keep his commandments. We don't add to them and become legalistic. But if the Bible says to do it, if Jesus says to do it, we do it. But even more, we treasure the gospel, the testimony of Jesus, that the Son of God came down as the Lamb to take away the sins of the world. And because of him, there are no accusations against us. We are free from shame. Because of this, as the war has moved from Jesus to us, even when he feels absent, we will face the dragon with courage and with the hope of the gospel. And when Satan comes to the church, we will refuse to accuse the bride of Christ because Jesus has loved her and laid down his life for her. And so we will love her too. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we uh, thank you for these powerful words uh, from the Lord Jesus, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And Lord, uh, we are sobered to think of what you would call these early disciples to endure for your name's sake. We thank you that these words are preserved to us, that you would call us to that same level of loyalty. You would call us and our children. You would call us as a community to say, uh, Lord, we would not love our lives even unto death. We cherish your promises. We cherish the hope of the gospel, the forgiveness of our sins. And Lord, we pray that you would fortify and strengthen us by the, the, the perfection of your word and, and the presence of your Holy Spirit that we would be prepared to give you our lives if you would so ask us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.